Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today, we spoke with Margaret Lewis. She's a China criminal law expert at Seton Hall University, and we were talking about the developments between China and Canada since the arrest of the CFO of Huawei Industries, and the fact that... uh, Uh, Mr. Schellenberg, the Canadian who's now facing the death penalty in China, that's all tied together with the political reality of the dispute between, really, it's the United States and China, with Canada caught in the middle with the arrest of the CFO uh, of Huawei and uh, the arrest of two of other Canadians in China recently. And there seems to be, with the Chinese government, uh, Professor Lewis told us, they have sort of, sort of given uh, indication that they're willing to maybe extend uh, the time for a resolution to three to four months, and then after that, look out. The Chinese are, are very serious about this. And my good friend Scott Newark is uh, the author of the extradition case of Huawei's Meng Wanzhou, What's Going On and What to Expect, and... Um, uh, Scott, of course, as you know, is former Alberta prosecutor, vice chair of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, director of operations for the Investigative Project on Terrorism and a security advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada. He's also an adjunct professor at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. So I, I read this uh, this article. It's quite scholarly and, uh, and, and it's it's very informative. And Scott, what, uh, what, what really stuck out to me, and it's, it's just a terrific read and it gives you a lot of background on, and, and, and perspective on the situation, is that the CFO of Huawei was arrested on the very day, as you point out, at the G20 conference where, when Donald Trump met with the Chinese President Xi on setting up a 90-day time frame to work out the trade differences between the two nations. It does have kind of a political feel to it, doesn't it? It sure does. And um, supposedly our prime minister had been notified already uh, in advance of that, um, and he says that he never uh, raised it with anybody. And equally, um, the Americans have a similar extradition treaty with Mexico. Uh, Ms. Meng was on her way to Mexico, uh, but the Americans didn't ask the Mexicans to do the seizure and arrest. They asked us to do it. Um, I think probably because they decided that we would be more reliable. But, uh, you know, the uh, Minister Freeland um, uh, originally uh, and steadfastly has commented that we're going to be guided by the rule of law. That was a point that was made uh, as well, too, I think, first in the public by uh, Brian Lee Crowley, who's the managing director of the McDonnell laurie Institute that I wrote that article you referenced for. And um, in it, what I was trying to do was to you know sort of drill down on what was in the news and actually take a look at what the legal background was and just in effect try to lay out what the uh, the potential next steps might be and what's sort of going on uh, behind the uh, the scenes 
And uh, it turns out that... Now, I wrote it uh, around... uh, I think it was published on December the 21st. And it's also important to realize that there is, in fact, a process required by the Extradition Act that the steps are... We're now about um, halfway through the first part of that process. At the time I wrote the article, the Americans, although they had made the request of us to arrest, and that's pursuant to a specific treaty they had not made a formal request and supplied the information to the government of Canada on the, in other words, on what basis the extradition should be made. That information was only supplied uh, last week, uh, last Tuesday, I believe, when the that clip that you played was from the acting attorney or the appointed attorney general mm-hmm. in the United Matthew States. Matthew Whitaker. And they have now made that formal request of the Canadian government. What happens, however, is that we now have, under the law, the, minister, the new Attorney General, uh, David Lametti, has 30 days to consider whether or not to issue what's called an authorization to proceed. And if in that time period he concludes that under the various provisions of the Extradition Act that it would not be appropriate to send uh, Ms. Meng back to uh, the United States, uh, then that will be the end of the proceedings. In my experience, I... I think there's like about a you know 95% rate where we do proceed on these cases, but that will be interesting to see because what it, what really struck me as strange about this Roy right from the get go was that she was charged personally. Mm-hmm. In other words, the corporation was not originally charged. They are now, but originally it was just her, and she was. And it's a very specific event in relation to lying to a bank. It's like a bank fraud to be able to get uh, financial services about a company and whether or not they were doing business in Iran and thereby violating the U.S. Uh, trade sanctions. But she made the presentation. Uh, I've even got a copy of the presentation. But she was obviously doing it on behalf of Huawei, and the profits that re- uh, resulted from that went to Huawei and not her. So it seemed kind of strange that you know they would charge her and not just the company, especially because I did a little more digging around, and it turned out that another uh, Chinese uh, uh, telecommunications company, ZTE, had been the subject of a similar investigation and charges on almost identical facts, and they were charged as a corporation, not individuals. And they pled guilty, paid a $1.1 billion fine. So why would they have decided to charge this lady who you know, is recognized as being part of the Chinese uh, government elite? Well, isn't that part? Could that be part of the answer? That they are part of the uh, Chinese elite? Well, and the Chinese have certainly taken it as an insult, haven't they? They sure have. And within a week, you know, Donald Trump, um, you know, chimes in and basically says, "Look, if I think this will help in our, um, you know, China-U.S. trade negotiations, which by remarkable coincidence had just uh, started, uh, you know, I'm prepared to intervene in this case." Well, one of the defenses. That, and one of the issues the minister has to consider in deciding whether or not to uh, proceed with the extradition is that there is a defense not to proceed if there's a determination uh, that the Section 46 sub 1C, if the minister uh, compels the minister to refuse extradition if he or she is satisfied that the conduct in respect of which extradition is sought is a political offense or an offense of a political character. So if the minister reaches the conclusion, and, you know, and I, I think his, uh, her lawyers will definitely argue this, that Mr. Trump's uh, comments indicate 
that in fact that there's a political motivation to that, um, there may be a basis for us to say, you know, no, this is not something appropriate for us to do uh, that. So when I saw this week or last week that the Americans have now added uh, charges against the corporation, kind of, now there are still charges against her, but kind of makes me feel that perhaps we are on the road to that kind of a uh, plea deal resolution where, uh, you know, the Americans uh, get uh, Huawei to plead guilty to the corporate charges, withdraw the charges, and in uh, response to which the Americans will agree to withdraw the charges against uh, Ms. Meng, which means that the uh, request for extradition will be withdrawn, which means we will stop the proceedings, which means she would be allowed to return to China. So that's, what that's we, my personal guess about what's going to happen. Okay, so it's, it's, it's intrigue and it's yes. uh, right political gamesmanship uh, to a certain extent. Now, but we, ha- we also have two completely different justice systems in conflict with uh, politics being played, and Canada's caught in the middle. Yeah, we, we are very definitely uh, caught in the middle of this, and part of what also makes this even more challenging uh, is the nature of the company itself and uh, the ongoing issues about whether or not countries are going to allow it to be involved in the rollout of the new 5G technologies. Huawei, and, and people have to understand this, uh, you cannot look at what happens in China through the same lens as what happens here. Okay, They do things a different way. They are a different country. They have a different culture. Um, and so you, and they also have a long, long history of a strategy of essentially trying to maximize their interests uh, by espionage, by theft of intellectual property, uh, by uh, attempts at uh, intimidating people, at corruption. This has gone on for decades. And the Chinese, interestingly enough, were, in my opinion, this goes back into the, uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s, they were probably uh, the country that gave, that had the most um, interest in the development of Internet-related and telecommunication technologies. And they have really, really focused on that. And that is an issue that has, uh, of course, arisen with uh, Huawei and ZTE, mm-hmm. with countries around the world, including our Five Eyes allies, actually taking steps to ban Huawei from being involved. Unfortunately, Canada has yet to make a decision on that, which I think is a grave mistake, and that simply heightens the political uh, consequences of the decisions involved in this. Okay. Let me, uh, let me do this, and thank you for that. I want to play something back for you. I have to take a break first. I spoke earlier today with uh, Mr. Scott Thomas, whose son Evan, 18 years of age, was uh, on the Humboldt Broncos bus. And uh, Evan was a player for the for the Broncos, and uh, Mr. Thomas, the second time he's been on the air with us, uh, and his struggles, uh, the the emotional challenges, the just the just what they the families and everyone involved yeah. have experienced over the last number of days. He spoke with me about his meeting with uh, Singh Sadhu, the the uh, the truck driver. I want to play that back for you uh, when we come back, because I'm curious whether you think this is going to have any, you know, I don't know whether it'll have a, what the meeting may have as far as an impact on the judge is concerned. You told us yesterday that the judge waiting seven weeks to provide the sentence is really, um, you said either provide it in 24 hours or, or get out, get off the bench, words to that effect, right? I think that was my subtle comment. Yes. So I want to play that back for you. 
and, and get your thoughts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Scott, I'll ask you to put on your prosecutor's hat and your, uh, your, your, legal, your legal hat. I uh, spoke earlier with uh, Mr. Scott Thomas, as I mentioned before the break, the father of uh, Evan Thomas, who played for the Humboldt Broncos, and uh, Mr. Thomas told us uh, earlier today about the emotional challenge of listening to the victim's impact statements, of, of going through the, the experience of the, uh, of the uh, sentencing hearing. But he's also the father who, sp- who spoke with uh, the truck driver, Jaskrit Singh Sidhu. And I, I want you to listen to this and then I, uh, tell me whether you think that meeting, which has been talked about, written about, but not there hasn't been much information about it, um, whether that, do you think, will have any impact on the judge's decision. This is going to be difficult for a lot of people to hear, but here's Mr. Scott Thomas talking to me about his meeting with um, with the truck driver. When we first spoke, you said at some time going forward, you might want to uh, speak with Singh Sidhu and ask him some questions and, and talk to him. I You spoke with him during the time of the sentencing hearing. I know you're not going to speak specifically or in detail about that conversation, Scott, but can you share anything with us about what took place? Sure. I, I was caught a bit off guard. I I didn't expect the circumstances as they did. I I don't know if it's common practice or not for people in that position to meet with victim families before sentences are handed out. I, when I said I'd like the opportunity to meet him, I kind of assumed it would be after his sentence was done and he was a free man and and we could sit down and talk, but uh, yeah, on uh, Tuesday, I believe it was, or Wednesday, whatever the last day was of the victim statements, his, I assumed it was his brother, but it may have been his cousin, came up and tapped me on the knee and said, would you please like to meet with our family after court today? And I assume you um, saw most of the times I spoke in public, and specifically that week, about how I'd, I'd welcome the chance to meet with them, and ask him a few questions and um so i said yes absolutely and uh after court was over i kind of took the the long way around to meet him to hopefully let the most of the media types file out of the room and uh i walked up to um young man and he goes do you want to speak here or should we find go back to our room and i said no let's go back to the room and so uh, him and I, I think it was Mr. Sidhu's uncle, and I started walking, and then uh, Mr. Sidhu followed. And, uh, yeah, we walked in the room, and I, I didn't know uh, for sure whether it was just going to be the cousin and the uncle or, or if Sidhu was going to be there, because he, when he offered the opportunity, he just said, our family. And then I turned around, and, and Mr. Sidhu was Mr. Sidhu was right there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, we began uh, we began talking. Right, and and you you would prefer to hold off on what your conversation was with him until after the sentencing, right? Yeah, I would. Uh, I have said it was very emotional. 
I said I've said there's been a lot of tears on both sides. Um, and he was entirely consistent with what he said in court on record. I mean, a lot of the things we talked about, but everything he said in court was exactly what he said to me uh, in the in our private discussions. And um, we, of course, discussed some other things, but uh, um, I definitely asked him the question why. And again, his reply was very consistent with what uh, he and his lawyer said in court. Um, and then we discussed a lot of other things too, but uh, uh, in the end, it was exactly what I had asked for. I was given the opportunity to talk to him, and and we did. And it was, uh, as I said before, I, I left there more emotionally drained and confused. And just when you think you're starting to process everything that's involved in this case, see another another level of of emotion and uh it just it's unbelievable there's mr scott thomas who's been uh, incredibly generous with his time to talk to canadians about this entire experience of his family and and other families and in this in this case it was the sentencing hearing so scott you have a dad and i understand completely why he wanted to talk to, to sing Sidhu. uh this happens before the sentencing uh does this impact with the judge in any way well, I think it, it sounds like uh, I, you can't tell from um, what he said whether or not the judge was specifically made aware of the fact that the conversation had taken place. But it certainly sounds like, and I think appropriately so, there is a recognition that this guy has taken responsibility for his actions and has expressed genuine remorse. Um, the, the judge would make a tremendous error if she did not take that into account. Uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when I was um, listening to the, especially the beginning part of the conversation uh, that you had with him, um, it reminded me about uh, how uh, what's, what's called restorative justice can actually help victims in uh, specific circumstances. And it's, it's where they get that opportunity to speak with the person that has caused the harm and to try to get a sense of, you know, what happened, why. Um, and it, it, in many ways, not always, not definitely not always, and it's not always genuine in my opinion, but in cases like this, it sounds like it. It almost provides a sense of empowerment to the, to the victims because they have uh, more knowledge of what actually took okay. place. And you've got somebody face-to-face accepting responsibility for uh, what they did. All right. In this guy's case... He's facing 29 charges. I did the math on it. I think it's a total of, uh, according to law, he could be sentenced. Uh, I've, got about, I've got about 20 seconds, my friend. 354 years. Wow. So take it into account, but let's consider all of the other relevant factors like denunciation and deterrence as well. All right. Thank you, Scott. I uh, right, always appreciate the time. Thank you so much. So hard to talk about, but it's so necessary. And again, the families have been so incredibly generous with their with their time for the rest of us. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.